You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. This is week two, covering Matthew chapters one through four. I am Lindsay Smoker. And I'm going to be teaching you this morning. I hope you all had some sweet conversation that was rich in understanding and application as you pulled apart these chapters with each other this morning. I also trust that as you continue uh, to get to know the ladies at your table, you will be encouraged with the fellowship that develops there at these tables. It is such a lovely thing to me that through the bond of Christ, we can experience this deep level of relationship with women we might otherwise have very little in common with. I heard it once said that friendship is born out of someone sharing their life with another person, and then that person responding back with, me too, I get you, I'm like that, I understand you. You might have very little to say me too about with the ladies at your table, but through Christ, we have everything to say me too about. And so it's our hope that here at WBF, this can be a community that is safe and encouraging for you as you grow in your walk with Christ. So we titled this study, Kingdom Come Near. And the obvious first question we wanna ask is, what is a kingdom? If you looked up the definition of a kingdom, you would come up with something like a state or a territory ruled by a king or queen. Kingdoms, as we think about them in storybooks or as we look across the ocean at England, they have kings and people and territories that they rule over. There is also a way of living that is lived out by the king's standards. Does this remind you of anything? Do you remember that question Chris asked last week? What did Israel need in order to become a nation? Does anyone remember what it was this time? People, land, and law. So what distinguishes a, a nation from a kingdom is the king who rules over it. And whether or not that kingdom is a good place to live is largely determined by the king who is ruling over it. We as Americans might feel kind of removed from this idea of kings and kingdoms, but I want to suggest to you that the longing for a king and a kingdom is actually inside of all of us. I want you to think about a great fairy tale, maybe a Disney movie, or Lord of the Rings, if that's your jam. Uh, maybe Avatar, if you've seen that movie that just came out. What do these stories have in common? Well, there's a similar uh, uh, storyline that kind of runs through all of them. And it starts out with the author creating this world. And we get to see in those opening scenes a picture of what this world is like, how the people interact, um, what uh, types of things that they do. Um, it is so interesting. I love seeing these opening scenes. And then what happens is something or someone comes in and opposes that order in that perfect way of life. And this causes the need for someone to come back in and set things right again. And we spend the rest of the story getting to the ending scenes. The ending scenes where all the order is put back together, where things are safe and good and right again. I love those last scenes as well. Why do we love these beginning and ending scenes? Well, it's because we all long to be in the hands of a good and perfect king where the laws of the land are just and right, where it's safe and there's no fear of calamity, and it all ends happily ever after. 
right? I feel like people have started to not like this line of happily ever after lately, right? Because they say it's, it's not true to life, uh, it's not real. But as believers, we actually do rest in the hopeful and optimistic truth that everything's going to end happily ever after. Scripture tells us that if you put your faith in Christ, you are being promised the kingdom of heaven. This morning, as we move through our texts, we're going to see that there's two responses to this king and kingdom. The first is opposition, and the second is allegiance. We're going to look, as we move through this narrative, at various characters who are going to fit into either one of these two categories. Chris defined the kingdom last week for us, and she told us that it is the rule and reign of Christ over all of creation. She told us that there's a part of the kingdom that is here and now, and there's another part of the kingdom that we await in the future, in the new heavens and the new earth. While God is sovereign, since the opening chapters, humans and angels have been rebelling against his rule. His reign is being contested and opposed. This isn't the way it's supposed to be, and we should feel that tension and chaos and disorder as we move through scripture. Throughout the narrative of the Old Testament, the Lord has revealed his character and his plan of redemption. The pages of the Old Testament, they show us a God who is both merciful and gracious. One who is slow to anger and astounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Who both forgives and pardons sins, but will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. But even as we see this perfect character of God displays, displayed, it highlights for us the imperfections of man. Time after time through scripture, we see these human deliverers rise, people like Abraham or David or Moses. But, um, and we ask the question, as, as we see these, these deliverers rise, we say, is this it? Is this, is this the one that has been promised since those chapters in Genesis? But each one of them falls short. And as the passage of time goes on, the ache grows for this promised one, this deliverer. And this is what Matthew has in mind as he opens his book. He opens it with this line. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The word genealogy means Genesis or beginning. This is a new beginning. We're continuing the same story of the Old Testament, but the Lord is doing something new through the coming of his son. It is the hinge point and the climax of scripture. This Jesus is the Christ. We had you look up the definition for Christ in your homework, and you should have seen that it, it means Messiah or anointed one. Messiah is the term that the Jews would have used for this long-awaited deliverer. He's the one who would crush the head of the serpent, the one promised of old to Abraham, the one who is eternally going to sit on David's throne. He's the perfect deliverer that everything is pointing towards. The genealogy that follows this opening line it's put together in a really specific manner. It's not actually giving us the name in the bloodline down from Jesus. If you noticed um, or looked at it closely, there's actually several names that are skipped. And also, those three sets of 14, 
they actually don't seem to add up to 14, according to our Western way of counting. I don't know if anyone looked at that closely. But what, what Matthew's doing here is he's not really trying to give us a history uh, through this genealogy, but rather he's trying to prove some theological points for us. Matthew wants to highlight specific ways that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament promises. We're going to see this theme of fulfillment throughout the rest of the book of Matthew. Matthew frequently, uh, frequently quotes the Old Testament actually more than 60 times. And he wants to show us that Jesus is it. Jesus is this Messiah. He is the Christ. And so as we look at this list of names, there's three things I want to point out for you this morning that we can uh, tell from that. The first is the bloodline. So even though he did skip several names in this list, we can clearly see that Jesus is coming through the right bloodline. He is coming through Abraham, to whom God promised to bless the whole earth, and through David, to whom God promised would be this king to eternally sit on the throne. The second is the timing in history. The Lord has purposely placed this time in history to be the moment that his son would come. We had you look at this diagram in your homework, and you saw that the first set of 14 goes from Abraham to the high point in, in Israel's history with David. And then the next point, or the next set of 14 names goes down from David to the low point in Israel's history at the exile. And then from there, the last set of 14 names goes back up to the new high point in Israel's history with Jesus. This is the moment that they've been waiting for. Thirdly, we see God's plan of salvation. There were four women noted in this genealogy. Did you notice that? Why? Why are these women here? Traditionally, women are not included in genealogies, so why does Matthew mention them? Well, each four of these women are actually Gentiles, either by birth or by marriage. And so what Matthew is showing us is that the Lord has always planned for the Gentiles to be saved as well. And these women have been grafted into the family of God and the line of Christ. The Lord is going to not just be calling the people of Israel to repentance, but Gentiles as well. And we're going to see that as we move through the book. All right, his birth. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Up until now, every time that Matthew mentions the name of Jesus, he calls him Christ. Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah. And this is a kingly title for Jesus. It's one of respect. But after this point, Matthew's going to lay aside this kingly title, and he's going to refer to Christ by his human name, Jesus. The God of the universe is coming to earth. He's laying aside his kingly title to be born as a baby in a manger. As we move through the early life of Jesus, culminating with the start of his ministry, we're going to see seven Old Testament prophecies that are being fulfilled in this really unlikely story. The Jews have been studying the scriptures for years, but they could never have imagined how this story was actually going to unfold. In that genealogy, we've heard repeated over and over again, and this person was the father of this person, and this person was the father of this person, until we get to Joseph. Did you notice that the rhythm changed there? The text doesn't tell us that Joseph was, was the father of Jesus. Rather, it tells us that he is the husband of Mary who bore Jesus. Joseph is not the father of Jesus. 
Rather, Jesus is the adopted son of Joseph, conceived by the Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Next, we zoom in to the story of Jesus' birth. We see Joseph displayed here as a kind and humble man who does not want to put Mary to shame. Rather, he desperately seeks a way to be both merciful and just to her. He's seeking to follow a merciful and just God. The text tells us he's just a man. And yet, through a dream, God reveals to him that he has been chosen to be the earthly father of the Son of God. The Lord chooses a man who is low in status, a humble carpenter, to be the earthly father of a king. Rather than seeking someone who is strong and wise by outward appearance, God is looking at the heart. He chooses a humble and obedient man to be the father of his son. And in the character of Joseph, we see hints of what, this val of what the values of the kingdom of heaven are going to look like. And they're not the values of this world. The Lord gives Joseph the name for the child who is to be born. And the name that he gives him is Jesus. It means the Lord is salvation. Jesus will save his people from their sins. And this is the desperate need that humanity has had since the garden. He quotes Isaiah 7:14, which hopefully you had a chance to look at. It says, behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. The creator of the world is going to dwell with his people. And he's no longer going to dwell shrouded in the cloth of the tabernacle or the stone of the temple, but rather he's going to dwell in human flesh. But how can this be? Since we know from Romans 12 that since Adam, every man has been born into sin. And God cannot be in the presence of sin, so how can the God of the universe be born as a human? The answer is found for us in the virgin birth. Jesus is not conceived by an earthly father. If he were conceived by an earthly father, he would inherit his sinful nature. Rather, it's the spirit who does the life-giving work of conception. In order for God to come in human flesh, we call this the incarnation. He cannot be born into sin. And in order for Jesus to pay the penalty of sin, he cannot be a sinner. And this is why up to this point, no mere man could be the Messiah because every one of them fell short. Everyone was born with a sinful nature. This is why Jesus had to be born through a virgin birth. It's why it matters because Jesus had to be sinless in order to be our savior. I wanna pause here and take a moment to look at the role of the Holy Spirit in the incarnation. Throughout all of scripture, we see that the primary work of the Spirit is creation and recreation. Just as the Spirit hovered over the face of the waters in creation, he is now going to overshadow the waters of Mary's womb. Through the work of the Spirit, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is how the Spirit works. He brings life. He creates. This is his role in the Trinity, and it's his role in our lives as well. Sisters, if you claim Christ as Lord, the same Holy Spirit who conceived the incarnate Christ is at work in your life as well. He's creating in you a new heart. He's doing the work of sanctification, helping you to align yourself with Christ. 
back to our story. Joseph now wakes up from his dream and he obeys the Lord. After the birth of Jesus, we see the story take a turn and it moves outside of Israel to some wise men in the east. We aren't really given much information about these wise men and despite what your nativity scenes may tell you, we actually don't know if they're kings. We don't know if there's three of them and we really don't know much about their beliefs. You don't need to throw out your wise men, it's okay. <laughs> but we do wanna correct some of this thinking for you just so you, you, you're reading the text and looking for what it actually says. What we do know about these men though is that they studied the stars. And we know that God is in control of the galaxies. And so through this supernatural event, the Lord places a star in the sky to announce the arrival of his son. These wise men somehow know that this star is connected to the birth of the king of Israel. And so they travel some unknown distance to go and find him. And the star leads them to Jerusalem. Where else would it lead them? Jerusalem is the city of the king. It's where David reigned at that high point in Israel's history. And it's where Herod is now ruling, claiming to be the king of the Jews. And so when they get there, they ask the question, where could this new king be? And when Herod hears of their coming and their question, he's terrified. I mean, the kind of terrified that makes you do crazy things. He is afraid that he's gonna lose control of his kingdom. And so he devises a plan. First, he finds them the answer to their question. And this is the second of our seven prophecies. It comes from Micah 5.2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. The king is gonna be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the smallest town in Judea. And here again, we see the Lord choosing what is seemingly low by earthly standards. He is picking Bethlehem rather than Jerusalem to be the birthplace for Jesus. Herod gives them their answer, and along with it, he gives them a claim that he too wants to come and worship this king. And so they're supposed to bring information back to him after they find him. So the wise men go to Bethlehem, and the star rests over the house of Mary and Joseph. When they see this king, they have the same response as Moses and Isaiah in the face of the Holy One. They fall down in worship. These wise and learned men from a distant land fall at the feet of this little boy. Friends, this is a foretaste of what will be. Gentiles are coming from a distant and far off land to worship the king. Throughout his ministry, Jesus is going to call not just the Jews, but the Gentiles to repentance. Ephesians tells us that this is the great mystery revealed in Christ, that the Gentiles are going to be grafted into the family of God. Nobody could have imagined this. Revelation tells us that a great multitude will one day surround the throne with people from every tribe and nation. They will bow at his feet and give allegiance to the king because this king is not just king of the Jews, he is king of the heavens and the earth. And so after these wise men leave, the Lord comes to them in a dream. He comes to both them and Joseph and he warns them of Herod's schemes. He tells them, he tells Joseph to take Mary and Jesus and to flee to Egypt for protection. Again, we see Joseph obeying the voice of the Lord and we get our third prophecy. This time out of Hosea 11.1. 1. Out of Egypt, I called my son. 
When the wise men do not return to Herod and he realizes he's tricked by them, he's furious and he becomes desperate to wipe out this king. He acts out of fear and self-preservation and he uses the information that the wise men gave him about how old Jesus was to be. And with it, he, he makes an edict to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem under the age of two. Matthew quotes a lament in response to this atrocity. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Jesus stays in hiding until this Herod, Herod the Great dies. And then God calls them up out of Egypt and they go to Galilee, to the city of Nazareth, to avoid Herod's son, Archelaus, who's reigning in Judea at the time. This fulfills the, the fifth prophecy that he would be called a Nazarene. Did Herod's tyrannical rule remind you of anyone else? A fearful leader trying to maintain control and power, one who would use the innocent and the vulnerable to get what he wants? Did you notice the parallels to the Exodus story and Pharaoh? We asked you to look for these things in your homework, and I hope that if you guys were here for the last two years as we studied the book of Exodus, that your time in that book served you well to see these ties. And if you weren't here, I would encourage you to look at Exodus and find some of these parallels. I'm going to give you a few here this morning. So after 400 years of slavery, God sent Moses to deliver the people. After 400 years of seeming silence between the Old and the New Testaments, God sends Christ to deliver his people. Moses left his place of royalty in Egypt. God left a place, or Jesus left a place of royalty in heaven. Pharaoh gives an edict to kill all the, baby boy, the Hebrew baby boys. Herod gives an edict to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem. Moses is hidden in a basket in the Nile. Jesus hides in Egypt. Moses comes up out of Egypt to save Israel. Jesus comes up out of Egypt to save the world. Moses is both a prince of Egypt and an Israelite. Jesus is both God and man. Moses spends 40 years in the desert to prepare for his ministry. Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness to prepare for his. These parallels are going to continue throughout the book of Matthew and I'd encourage you all to look for them as we continue to study. Just as in Exodus, we told you that the people are being saved from and saved for. Do you all remember that? We reiterated it a lot. So too here now, Jesus is saving his people from sin and bondage to Satan. And he's saving them for the purpose of kingdom. He's saving them so that they may live under the rule and reign of Christ to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Friends, this is our deliverance and this is our hope. So how do we respond to this king? Repentance. 
we repent. The story now jumps 28 years, and this is the cry of John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist is a wild man. He is covered in camel's hair, and he eats locusts and wild honey. Yum. We know from Luke's gospel that he is the cousin of Jesus, and he's born to Zechariah and Elizabeth in their old age. Here we have our sixth prophecy. It comes from Isaiah 43. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist is preparing the people's hearts for the king. He's making them ready by calling them to repentance. His message is like the prophets of old. He's telling the people to turn from their sin and to follow God with their whole hearts. He's calling them to true repentance. They have to do more than just assent and say that they believe in God. He's calling them to give full allegiance to the Lord. Next, we see John the Baptist addressing the Pharisees and the Sadducees in the text. These men are supposed to be the righteous men in Israel. But we see John calling them a brood of vipers, snakes. These men have presumed upon their own righteousness to save themselves. They think that their words and their beliefs and their rituals are enough. But John warns them that they are not bearing the fruit of true repentance. They have placed themselves on the throne, not God. They have missed the mark and the heart of the law. Psalms 51, 16 to 17 tells us what the Lord desires for his people. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. The Jewish leaders like Herod are in opposition to Jesus. And we're going to see throughout the rest of the book how they will grasp at anything to try to hold on to their kingdoms of power and control. I want you guys to watch as we move through the text to see what these Jewish leaders' response to Jesus is, and then to see how Jesus responds to them. Jesus' time of ministry begins with his baptism. Why did the sinless Son of God need to be baptized? I hope you all enjoyed trying to figure this out. I certainly did. It's hard, right? Even John the Baptist asks this question. He questions Jesus saying, Lord, surely you're the one that's supposed to be baptizing me, not the other way around. But Jesus responds to John and he tells him that this is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is not becoming John's disciple, which baptism would normally signify, but rather he's aligning himself with the message that John is proclaiming, the message of repentance. And so as Jesus goes into the water of baptism, he is in complete submission to the will of the Father. Jesus shows for us what hum humility and obedience look like. This is gonna be the start of his ministry. It's an inaugural moment. He is going to be the representative for all who believe. And so in these waters of repentance, he identifies with sinners and he joins us in baptism. Jesus goes before us in all things. At his baptism, we see the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Just as the Spirit conceived the incarnate Christ, so now we see him empowering Jesus' mission on earth. 
The father is pleased with his son who is in complete obedience to the will of the father. And all three parts of the Trinity are involved in Jesus' work on earth. After the baptism, the spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Jesus goes without food for 40 days. And for those of you who were here with us last year, do you remember what those Israelites were like wandering around in the desert without food? Or maybe you could just think about what you would be like wandering around in the hot desert without food. Happy, right? No, they grumbled. They grumbled a lot. And the worst of themselves came out. And so here we see Satan, the ruler of the kingdom of the world, come and tempt Jesus. He's at a point where his human defenses are low. He's hungry. And Satan offers him three temptations. To every one of them, Jesus resists with the word of God. In each of these temptations, Satan is encouraging Jesus to lay aside his deity. To lay as, to, sorry. In each of these, he's encouraging Jesus to lay aside his humanity and to exert his deity. He's tempting him, as Douglas O'Donnell says, to grab the crown without the cross. He tempts him to step outside of the will of the Father by taking hold of the crown, which is rightfully his, without enduring the pain and the suffering of the cross. He tempts him to join him in opposition to God. Isn't this so often our temptation? I know I find these desires in my own heart. The desire to oppose the will of God by taking the easy road out, the way that seems more appealing to my flesh, this is the way of the kingdom of the world. And when we do this, we're falling in line with Satan and not God. Unlike Jesus, we don't deserve the crown and the glory, but in our pride, we try to grasp for it anyway. So if this desire is common to man, how do we resist it? How in the world do we not fall prey to our flesh? How do we walk in allegiance with God? we see in Jesus that the way to fight temptation is through scripture. Every time that Satan tempts Jesus, Jesus responds with the word of God. Jesus displays for us the sufficiency of scripture. I want you to think about this. He is the word made flesh. He is a walking and living testimony to the word of God. And yet when he stands in front of the accuser, he quotes from the written word of God. The same written word of God that you and I have access to. Jesus doesn't speak with some special knowledge that he has in his deity, but rather in his humanity, he shows us that all of scripture is sufficient. Ephesians tells us that scripture is the sword of the spirit. And through the power of the spirit, we can understand the truth of scripture. And we then can use it to fight the lies of the enemy. We asked you a question in your homework about scripture and temptation. And I would encourage you to continue to identify these temptations that you struggle with and what the scripture is that you can use to fight them with truth. After Jesus' baptism and temptation, John the Baptist is arrested. John's purpose and work has been accomplished. So Jesus withdraws to Galilee and travel, travels to Zebulun and Naphtali, preparing to begin his ministry. 
again, Matthew points out for us that all of scripture is being fulfilled, even what seems to be very small and minute details. Here he quotes from Isaiah 9.1. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Jesus begins his earthly ministry with the same call as John the Baptist. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is at hand means to come near. Jesus is here. The God of heaven has come near. Jesus calls some of his closest disciples next to come and follow him. And their response, like Joseph, is one of immediate obedience. They respond to this call and they leave everything behind. This story is a picture for us of what allegiance looks like. This is the response that, the, that believers in the gospel message should have. When we follow Christ, we leave everything behind. We stop what we're doing and our lives take this sharp turn. We don't just assent to the gospel, but we give full allegiance to it. We follow Christ. We are now citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Our way of life, our meaning, our purpose, absolutely everything shifts. We don't live for ourselves anymore, but rather we become forever united with Jesus. We follow him. We told you that there are two responses to this message of the gospel, opposition and allegiance. We're going to see through the book of Matthew that the message of Christ is so powerful, it demands a response. This is still true today for us sisters. We all have a choice. Like Herod and the Pharisees, we can try to hold on to our own kingdom, unwilling to submit and fighting vainly to try to overthrow his rule. Or like Joseph and the wise men, we can respond in allegiance. We can repent and acknowledge our need for him. Leaving behind our old lives and our mission and our way of life, we can turn and follow and submit ourselves to him, joining him in his work. Our final paragraph gives us a taste of the kingdom of heaven. This message is already here and yet it's not fully realized because we live in a world that contests Jesus as king. Jesus goes on to proclaim the good news throughout the land. Did you notice a bunch of the alls and the everys in this last paragraph? Did it make you question? Matthew is using some really extreme language here, and it's likely that he's not literally meaning there is no sick person left, but rather he wants us to understand that Jesus's message is pervasive and impactful. It's also pointing us forward to one day, one day when his reign will no longer be contested, when all will bow the knee, when he will wipe away every tear, when death and sorrow will be no more. Friends, Christ is our hope. This is our happily ever after. The kingdom that we await under the perfect rule of a perfect king, where we will glorify him and enjoy him forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand before you this morning and we recognize that you are king. There is no other like you in heaven and earth, Lord, and we owe you allegiance. We owe you our lives. Lord, through your spirit, would you continue to illuminate areas in our life where we may not be giving full allegiance to you.
Lord, would you use us, would you help us to use your word to fight the temptations of our flesh, Lord, to speak truth to them? Heavenly Father, I pray for myself and these ladies that as we leave this room, that the truth of your word, that the encouragement of being with sisters in Christ would carry us through as we walk out these doors, that it would realign our heart and our minds to think on things above. Lord, would we live our lives in such a way that they would glorify you in a way that we are looking towards the hope of heaven, that we are sojourners in this earth and this world is not our home, that we are citizens of another kingdom. Lord, would these truths become more real in our lives this week? We ask all of these things in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ, amen.